From our New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the Vine Pair Podcast. And uh, Zach, it is the 100% dog days of summer. Uh, I don't know about you in Seattle, but it is super hot here. <laughs> super hot. It is not here. It is uh, actually kind of been a weird August. It's not been that hot. Really? Uh, yeah, we got like a, a big like uh, sort of downpour yesterday and it's it's been like fine but it's it's kind of uh you know it's kind of i guess what people when they when they come here and it's funny because you know your co-founder josh was uh has been in seattle uh until uh, just recently and uh i think this is like what people envision with seattle where it's kind of like gray and rainy and it's actually not how it typically is in august but uh but we gave into the uh to the you know to the myth i guess this this last week yep i mean it's crazy but so Here's the deal, man, because you guys are cool, we're hot, but when it's super hot, I start craving you know, certain cocktails. Uh-huh. Um, so what's really crazy is I have some, uh, some colleagues who have this really strong belief um, that the Paloma is going to be the next big drink. Mm. And I love a Paloma. But you know what? After spending 45 minutes yesterday <laughs> searching – Every single supermarket in my neighborhood and bodega, for those not in New York, bodega basically is a convenience store, for literally any kind of grapefruit soda, I have a strong belief it's not going to be. Yeah. <laughs> because that's like one of the quintessential ingredients, and it was super hard. Like, I couldn't even buy a Fresca, man. Wow. Like, and Fresca's, you know, like really, you know, stretching. We're talking about legit grapefruit soda, but like, I had I had bodega owners didn't have any clue what I was talking about. I was saying, look, can I get Doritos? You're like, what's Doritos? Can I get Ting? What's Ting? You know, all these like very well-known Latin American grapefruit soda brands. And no one had heard of them. No one had them. And I live in a neighborhood that, I mean, I would have to look up the census, but it's got to be at least probably 25 to 30% Hispanic. Wow. And I, there was no grapefruit soda. So if I can't find that here and and look i know someone like tim is gonna listen to this podcast and be like well adam that's just because everyone's making palomas and all the great <laughs> was sold out but let's be clear i don't think that you know i think that they just don't have it there were plenty of cbd beverages yeah, in I've... all the bodegas uh-huh. but there was no grapefruit soda. So, like, i think that that's what it makes it and so it just sort of like made me realize as you know someone you know as a journalist and People who, you know, we like to try to predict trends. We have to be really wary of the trends we predict because just because we think it's going to be really cool doesn't mean it will if people can't get that the one major product they need in order to make that drink. Yeah. And in this case, that was grapefruit soda. And in New York City, I couldn't find it. Yeah, like, that's wild. And so I was curious for you, like, how easy would it have been for you to, in Seattle, have gone out and gotten grapefruit soda? Oh boy, that's a good question. Well, now, so like now, I feel like I know what I'm gonna do as soon as the podcast is over, uh, which is go go canvas my local grocery stores and see. Not exactly a lot of uh, bodegas where I live, but uh, but definitely, I, I I don't know. I I think I'd probably find something, but you know, here probably I would find a a grapefruit soda that was like you know a six ounce bottle and it cost me four dollars, um, which I'm not sure is gonna necessarily help the trend either. Exactly. Like, so I think it's, it's just interesting. Like, if my parents had tried to make it, or my brother had tried to make it, or people I know, other parts of the country, you know, my brother's in Arkansas. Like, I don't think they would have an easy time finding it. And so that you know that makes the 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 expansive nature of this cocktail, you know, growing across the country rapidly, 
uh, I think very difficult. So I just, you know, as much as it's delicious, it, I can't believe it. And once I started searching, you know, like, like when you start searching, you're like, I, you're not going to give up. Yeah. I mean, I didn't give up. And uh, I walked all over this neighborhood. I found one bodega that had literally three bottles of Ting grapefruit soda left. They didn't even know they still had it. <laughs> and uh, that came back to my apartment. And then I made Palomas for myself and some friends. But, like, we also only got to have one Paloma each because I had only gotten three bottles yeah, of cool. grapefruit soda. And we're talking, you know, glass bottles. We're not talking, you know, large uh, two-liter Cokes. Yeah. So it was uh, – it was uh, definitely a very a comedy of errors, if you will. But I think uh, in that sort of brings us to our our, uh, our topic for this week, which you and I have talked about a bunch. And I've been traveling a lot this summer. I know you travel a lot. Your wife travels a lot. And, and so we, we sort of uh, discussed, like, as we travel around the country, you know, if you live in certain places, you become used to certain beverages, certain uh, styles of service, et cetera. And we've you and I have offline had a lot of conversations about what is actually reasonable to expect from your bartender, your song, et cetera, at, at places around the country. Like what is reasonable and what is unreasonable. And so I'm curious from your perspective to start us off, like what do you think is something that, you know, you know, if you're a bar, you should know how to do X. Okay, so I'm going to make the, this point illustrating uh, I'm going to illustrate this point with an experience from my wife's recent work travels so my wife was recently in Washington D.C. for work and she w- was at a restaurant and she ordered um, their house Negroni off their cocktail list so something that's actually printed on their menu and for reasons that are she wasn't clear on and I'm certainly not clear on um, the bartender had basically no idea how to make a Negroni which I think first of all is sort of bizarre in this day and age. Um, but, but then sort of did this thing where, he, um, you know, from what she relayed to me, he kind of like looked at the menu and sort of tried to guess. I and mean, again, you know, you and I know, and most of our listeners, and he didn't know how to make an agroni and was on his menu. Yeah. So that's weird. Uh, agreed. So, so I would say that it is reasonable to expect that if you walk into pretty much any bar of any merit or in whether it's a standalone bar in a restaurant in a hotel whatever this day and age in the united states you should be able to order a negroni and get something that is at least comprised of gin campari and sweet vermouth my wife got like gin some other italian liqueur and bitters so something went wrong um something went very wrong and um, i mean that is just so so i think it's reasonable i See, I'm going to push back a little bit. I think I've been to places where they still don't know what a Negroni is and don't know how to make it. And I think if you're in a metro area, maybe we could say at certain places it's reasonable. I think it's 100% reasonable if it's on the list. Yeah. <laughs> like if if it's on a cocktail list, if someone has created a cocktail list, it is reasonable for you to assume as the patron – that they know how to make that cocktail. And I'm going to go one step further and say, if that cocktail is named after a classic cocktail, even if it is your variation, it is also reasonable for the patron to assume that that cocktail will somewhat have the flavor profile of that classic cocktail. Yeah. So if you say that this is, you know, Biff's Bar, and at Biff's Bar, this is Biff's Negroni, and it's your riff on the classic Negroni, 
and you bring me something that tastes of elderflower liqueur, has no bitterness whatsoever, right, and is super sweet, that's not a Negroni. And it's reasonable for me to expect that it would have tasted somewhat like a Negroni. Yeah. Fair? I 100%. That sadly is not what happened to my wife, but 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 uh, hopefully uh, her fate is not uh, has not been most of your fates. So I think, uh, you know, on another one that's reasonable to assume, it's fair for all of us, I think, across the country. I think it's fair to assume that if you are going to serve beer, right, on draft, you have clean draft lines. Oh, God, yes. Like, it is... I should not have to wonder whether or not the beer is funky because it's either funky or because you haven't cleaned your draft lines, right? So if you are a high-quality bar or just a dive bar, just a bar, if you're going to serve beer on draft, you got to clean your draft lines. And if I have to say that I think the beer is dirty, that is no bueno. So I have an interesting story to tell about this. It's a, it's a little bit of an aside, but it was a good illustration of this. So a number of years ago, um, I wrote a piece for um, a publication here in Seattle that was about sort of the various beverage options um, available at uh, when you go to a Seattle Mariners game. And the, the Mariners and their, the company that handled the concessions for them was very proud of how hard they'd worked to integrate um, the local beer scene here into their you know offerings at the, at the stadium. And the craziest part of this whole experience was – talking to the guy who's the beverage or was the beverage director um, for the Mariners and or for the stadium and him talking about how much manpower went into cleaning the lines at the stadium every single day and some of and partially because some of the lines were like hundreds of feet long because most of the beer is kept was kept in a very large walk-in sort of underneath basically kind of almost underneath the field not exactly underneath the field but very clear uh, very like kind of right behind home plate and it blew my mind i mean i was glad to hear it but it was like you know i mean he was saying like it takes you know it's it's a they have like a team of like i don't know i think it was like eight people who for two hours after the game every night are cl- or every day if it's a day game are cleaning the lions because they considered it you know essential to serving quality beer it which is it essential is. to serving quality beer 100 like percent. it is like, and I think that's what's, you know, that's what's super frustrating is like it is 100% essential to serving quality beer for you to clean your draft lines. Like if if you don't clean your draft lines, then you don't care about beer. Yeah. Plain and simple. Yeah. And that's fine. Just don't pretend like you do. Like it's just it's I've been to so many bars where I know what the beer is supposed to taste like and it doesn't taste that way. And I hate having to tell the, you know, the server or the bartender, Hey, there's something wrong with this beer because it also always makes me so upset that there's going to be a consumer that's going to experience that beer and going to think that that beer is disgusting when it's delicious because someone didn't clean their draft lines. Yeah. And I don't know, this is actually interesting because I don't know how you feel about this because it's sort of a little bit, not on the journalism side, but on the restaurant side, shades into our pay-to-play conversation. But I know that some beer companies will actually come out, like they'll have people who will come out and clean draft lines in bars specifically to avoid that, to avoid basically a guest or a, a patron coming in and drinking their beer and thinking their beer sucks because actually the draft lines are dirty. And I know bars that definitely 
you know, avail themselves of that service. And I, I kind of am of like, well, are you only buying that beer because they'll clean your lines for free? Flip side, though, it's better to have I mean, draft lines than not. Yeah, look, I think it's it's hard because it, this is a little bit of a tangent, obviously, but it's it's one of these things where if you're, it's not feasible for the little people, right? So like anyone who's a small producer, like they just probably don't have the manpower to really go out there. A lot of the times I'll talk to certain craft brewers and they say like, well, that's what their distributor's job is for. Is a lot of you know their distributor will go out and clean their you know clean the draft lines, but I do also say like look like it's really hard as a brewer if you're gonna allow your beer out in the wild to trust anyone else who's serving your beer to serve it with the same care and attention that you are, and so in that case like if it means you got to go out and clean draft lines, and that also means that by you cleaning those draft lines, the bar is more likely to take on your beer because they don't have to clean them. I mean, it's like that's kind of that. That's a little bit of the price we pay for ensuring, as a producer, we, you know, our our product is quality when the customer puts it in their mouth. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, yeah, I I, I agree with you. It, it seems a little bit like, oh man, that sucks that that's how it has to be, but it kind of is how it has to be to ensure that the beer is going to be delicious. Okay, so if your thing is is making sure that a bar or restaurant has clean draft lines. Mine is making sure that they have clean glassware. I can't tell you how many times I have been served a beverage, doesn't matter what, beer, wine, spirit, cocktail, in something that I'm unclear if it was ever washed, but it definitely wasn't washed immediately before my drink was put in it. And uh, it's just, it's, you know, I've worked in restaurants for a long time, and I understand that things happen, right? You know, people mess up, they take dirty glasses thinking they're clean from a rack, but holy shit, people, this is not that difficult. I mean, we are not asking the world here. We're asking that your dishwasher works, that you run your glassware through it regularly, that maybe every once in a while it gets serviced so that it actually gets shit clean. And then, like, my my side note is I'd also like to be served my beverage that's intended to be served cold in a glass that's not hot out of the dishwasher. But frankly, I'll take clean and hot over dirty and cold. So, but let me ask you a question. So, as a consumer, how do you handle telling? So how how should you tell the person who served you that drink that, that the glass is dirty? Because usually, some usually, it's not always dirty to the site, right? So, I think I think that's also important for us to clarify. We're talking about dirty glassware as a, as beverage professionals, right? Like, I often don't notice that a, that a glass is dirty by looking at it. It's by smell. Mm-hmm. Right. And it usually smells like mildew. Yeah. Or like a dirty rag. Right. Like you smell the sponge that sits on your kitchen sink after doing dishes. It smells like that. And you can it's it ruins the drink. Right. But so, I mean, what would you do? Would you just call the person over and say, hey, like, give this a whiff? Or how would you recommend handling that? Because it's also awkward to say to someone like, hey, I think your glasses are dirty like this this glass smells like um, a dirty mop. Yeah. So, I mean, you're right. It is, it is always a delicate proposition and, and some of it depends on where I am and how I'm feeling. And, you know, sometimes I'll just fucking suck it up and drink it. And so other times I will send it back. I think it's easier to send it back when, for me, when it's a place where I know that I can envision myself working there and know that I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to feel like someone was drinking something that was served in, in a glass that was dirty. Cause like, you know, for me, I would always, always, always on the service side of it, it 
you know, it would make me very unhappy to think about someone drinking a glass of wine or a cocktail or whatever out of something that's dirty or, you know, chipped or whatever. And obviously broken stuff is easier to spot than, um, than dirty things, especially if you're right. It's, it's sort of that lingering odor more than a, you know, a smudge or a stain or something. But I, I mean, my, my advice is like, you know, we as consumers, if we're, we have to vocalize and you can be polite. You can say, Hey, you know, I just wanted to point out, like, I think this glass maybe wasn't super clean or this drink smells really weird. Like, can you, yeah. Can you take a smell? And again, you know, the hallmark of so much of this stuff is that a, a quality establishment, one that is worth frequenting and returning to should not, you know, should not bust your ass over a drink you know they shouldn't there shouldn't be argument there shouldn't be arguments about it there shouldn't be a well actually it should just be like okay let me let me remake that for you or let me get a new glass or let me do something to make this right and as long as you're not a complete asshole to your server or bartender which you know hopefully none of you are then this isn't a big issue you know in the end you know i i when i waited tables i got people sent back you know 85 dollar steaks all the time and it wasn't like you know, that's one where we're, you know, the restaurant has taken in the shorts on that one, but we still would make them a new steak, whether there was anything wrong with it or not. And um, that's just, you know, you build that into the cost of doing business when you're when you open a restaurant or a bar. And you want to I think if you're a, a reasonably good operator or bartender or whatever, you want to you don't want to be taking someone's money for something they're unhappy with. And, and a, a drink served in a dirty glass is absolutely something that falls into that category. All right. So gotcha. I got another one for you. I think it's reasonable to expect that if you are at a place that is serving wine of a certain price, they serve that wine at the proper temperature. Mm-hmm. What's a certain price, though? Because I'm curious. So I'm saying, like, if I'm if I'm you know at a if I'm paying more than probably eight bucks a glass. So basically, if I'm not at a dive bar, yeah, right. Like, if I'm at a wine, if I'm at a place that, if I'm at a nice restaurant, if I'm at a restaurant, let's just call it a restaurant. If I'm not at a diner or a dive bar, right, you serve the wine at the proper temperature. Mm-hmm. So the red is not super hot. It's also not super cold. The white is not super cold, right? It's served at the proper temperature, which means it was stored at the proper temperature. Like I think that's somewhat – that's reasonable to expect, right, that I'm going to get for my money the wine in the condition in which it was intended to be served in order to be enjoyed at its maximum potential. Okay, so here's a question I have for you that goes along with this because I grapple with this with my wine program. So one of my issues sometimes is that I find that with our glass pours and w- with, with glass pours, let's say white, rosé, sparkling wine, maybe just even white and rosé because sparkling wine, I think you and I would probably agree, should be served colder than the other two. I, well, I, what my, I might consider the sort of appropriate temperature for a white wine or a rosé is for most of my guests warmer than they want it. They want most of their white and rosé if not ice cold, colder than I think you or I would choose to drink it at. And I, after having this kind of back and forth with people and or this feeling of like people feeling like the wine isn't cold enough, I eventually sort of said, well, it, to myself mostly, okay, we're going to we're going to keep the wine a little colder because, you know, if your wine is a little too cold, it's not a it's a little easier to warm it up, you know, it, just in the glass relatively quickly then if the you pour someone a glass of wine and they're like this is too warm for me then what then you're kind of stuck as a as a server or sommelier or whatever so so i don't know how do you because i think you know our standards or, or our preferences are maybe a little bit out of step with the average wine drinker because we probably want our whites a little warmer and our reds a little colder no i agree i think it's better to err on the side of probably the the 
majority of the consumers you're going to encounter. And, you know, if you, if you find someone who says, you know, has a complaint, say, you know, I understand that, you know, the white should be a little, a little bit warmer than it is. However, the majority of our clientele enjoys drinking at this temperature. Um, you know, I'm happy to pour you something else while you let this come to the right temperature. Yeah. Like that actually, that happened to me recently at a, um, at one of my favorite wine bars in the city. They actually, they just, they didn't have something cold enough. Um, it was like a, a sparkling they thought should be colder. And so while we were waiting on that to cool down, they poured us something else, like, you know, little half glasses, but it was a really nice gesture. And it kind of was like a, Hey, we understand, you know, you want this at a different temperature. So we're going to let this either cool down or warm up for you. So I guess that's, that's. That's more of my reasonable to assume because, again, it's the right temperature for, for everyone. But if you have a, a customer who is looking for a certain temperature, giving them something else is a really nice gesture. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so so piggybacking on the wine, and especially to me, this is a wine-by-the-glass conversation. So to me, another thing that I really expect is that if I go somewhere, again, doesn't matter, sort of bar, restaurant, whatever, and there are not there are not more descriptors on the wine list than – sort of, oh, this is our Pinot Gris or this is our Chardonnay or our Pinot Noir or whatever. I think it is reasonable of me to expect, even if I don't recognize the producer, that the wine will, broadly speaking, in the same way that your Biff's Negroni should still be recognizably a Negroni, Biff's Pinot Gris should probably be Pinot Gris that the average person would recognize and not weird amphora skin contact pinot gris unless that's clearly called out on the menu and i this agree is, this is a menu thing and a service thing too because i do think that if if you are pouring that by the glass and that's your vibe and someone comes in and orders it it's kind of incumbent upon whoever's serving them to say like by the way this may not be the pinot gris you are expecting but it's happened to me and i mean you know i have pretty wide range of wines that i find interesting to drink but it's frustrating to me when i drink when i get poured a riesling that tastes like chenin blanc or i get poured a Sauvignon Blanc that tastes like Chardonnay or whatever the case may be. Uh, and and to me, it's just, again, this is part menu writing and part service. But regardless, it happens from time to time, and I find it extremely frustrating. I agree. I think that's fair. I do think that's fair. You know, I think at some point you should – if, if, if you put a, you know, Pinot Noir on the list, it should pretty much taste like Pinot Noir. It shouldn't taste like Syrah. Yeah. You know, there's lots of Pinot Noirs people make that taste like Syrah, let's be clear. But, uh, and by that I mean super ripe and way, you know, way too uh, boozy. But for the most part, if someone's ordering a Pinot Noir, it should taste like, you know, light, bright Pinot Noir. Yeah. And unless you're going to say this is, you know, a Pinot from a really ripe, very hot area. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think that's, I think that's definitely fair. I also, I mean, you're going to, you're going to, kill me on this one but <laughs> i can't wait uh because because I've, I've 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 told you that it's not possible and yet i still think it's reasonable to assume that if you do not update your list and i come into the restaurant and i'm looking for a certain wine or spirit etc it's reasonable to assume that if that is on the list that you will give me something that is like it at the same price I actually, I think that's reasonable. I don't. I think, I think, I, I think we had a conversation where I said people should update their online lists, and you told me that right. No and one I does said that. I don't think that happens that often. But I guess like one of my biggest pet peeves is you'll go in, you'll be like, oh, you know, I really am looking for this uh, this bourbon that's I don't know, like let's say it's fifteen. People are going to think this is insane, but let's say it's fifteen dollars for a glass of this bourbon, right? Mm-hmm. 
and all you have is this other bourbon that's 25 that you tell me is going to take it tastes a lot like that 15 i think it is reasonable to assume that you would give me that bourbon for 15 oh this is interesting i i i think there's I don't, think- or at least something, because it's that's super, as a consumer that's super frustrating. Sure. So like you didn't update the list, so it's not there anymore. Now, if you ran out that night, maybe I could understand it. But like, you always have all these. I mean, dude, everyone who works in the industry, you know, everyone tells the truth for the uh-huh. most part. So it's like, no, nah, man, like we ran out of this a few weeks ago. <laughs> you know, I'm just like, well, this sucks. Yeah. Well, I think I it's- know, maybe maybe I- I'm being maybe I'm being too hard now. No, now I'm like now I'm. Now I'm regretting totally that this is my this is reasonable to assume, but it is it's it's really as a consumer it's super frustrating for sure. And I think the point is like kind of like your last point about temperature. This is a point where there's a good service way to handle this and a bad service way. So the bad service way to handle this is they'd be like, "Yeah, sorry, man, we're out," or like, "Yeah, we're out," but we have this other thing that you might like that's twice the cost. Neither of which makes most people feel good. And so part of this is. You know, there, there's no there's no bar in the world, I don't think, that only has like three bourbons. I hope not. Um, and and so, yeah, you might have to the restaurant or the bar might have to give a little bit on their price. Maybe they say, hey, you know, I have this thing. It's normally twenty five. The one you wanted is fifteen. I can meet you in the middle and give it to you for twenty. Maybe that makes you feel like you're getting a little bit of a deal, but they're still not you know taking quite the hit. You know, the other thing is like again, as comes back to my point about most things. If ten dollars is the is making or breaking your night as a restaurant or bar, you're in the wrong business. So you obviously shouldn't just be giving away product left and right. But like, if you can't make that right, if you can't make that amount right, you know, I think that's that's. I, I think you're. I think you're right in the sense that like it's there's something should be done. There should be an alternative for you. There should be a hey, we're going to give you this at a at a reasonable you know at a better price, or we're going to give you something that's maybe similar priced, and maybe we can give you a taste of it and see if it's close enough to what you're looking for. Right. Maybe it's not, you know, maybe it's not a weeded bourbon, but maybe it's a little softer and smoother than some of the other stuff we have, or whatever the case may be. I just think I think you were right to expect that you know when someone hands you the menu, whatever it is, your reasonable assumption as a customer is the things that are on the menu are things I can purchase. And right. while obviously restaurants and bars run out of individual items from time to time, and yes, there are certainly places we've all been where they seem to never reprint the list, whether it's a wine list, spirit list, whatever, they should be aware of that. They should preempt it. You know, the, the one I hate is the like, you know, you order something and then 15 minutes later, the bartender or server comes back and like, oh, we're actually out of that. And it's one thing if they catch it right away, but it's like, well, shit, I could have been drinking something else in this time. Like, how do you not even know what what your inventory situation is? Like, I know exactly. Cringe. Like, oh, we went down to the cellar and like, we actually don't have it here. I'm like, uh, how did you not know that? Yeah. Like that this just was 20 minutes where the entire party was sitting here waiting because I was the person in charge of selecting the wine. And like, now you don't have the wine. Yeah, that and I sucks. and so so this is my last one, and it feeds very much back into this, I think, um, which is I also find it like very I don't know how to describe it. It's very frustrating to me when I go into a restaurant or into a bar, and I'm I order a drink, and I have my drink, and I finish my drink, or I'm very close to finishing my drink, and I would like to order another drink. I would like to spend more money. I would like to have another cocktail, another glass of wine, another bottle of wine, and it's like pulling teeth to order another drink and and it, it, you know, this is the thing that just blows my mind like it, it's one of my absolute you know top of mind service points to anyone we hire who's new to service or even who's 
not new to it, but is new to our company. And it's like, with few exceptions, you should always ask if someone wants another drink. I mean, obviously, if you're cutting them off, you shouldn't. Uh, but basically, right. short of that, like, unless they've already paid you and they've already, like, like some people want an after-dinner drink. Some people might finish their dinner and want another glass of wine. Like, to, if you don't offer those things, and it's certainly if they're still eating or whatever, like, it's insane to me that I, I am out dining sometimes and I'm like, like seriously what the fuck i'm trying to spend money here how why is this so hard those people would never like there would never be a comp a similar thing with like you know it's not like you order appetizers and you have to like you know beg the server to let you order entrees i don't think i've never had that experience they're always on your food order but for some reason getting that second or third drink or whatever sometimes it's just a debacle and and i don't like pulling teeth yeah totally i I don't either and actually it, it it happens a lot it happens a lot more than you would think where it's like oh we order a cocktail and then like they never come around for the wine order or you order that one bottle of wine. You're right. And then the and then the wine's gone. And then like it's, you know, let's say like let's say the wine runs out for half of the party, like right after the, the first one or two bites of the entree. Right. And so were someone to come over right then and ask, you would for sure order another bottle of wine. Mm-hmm. But instead, we now get to the, the din. Now we're now we're at dessert. And we're like, no, no, I don't want that wine anymore. Yeah. You know, I would have totally ordered another bottle and like let that bleed into waiting to order dessert. And then maybe I would have had dessert and had an after dinner drink. But like you're right. It it can it can be at a lot of places very hard. I find it it the same very hard even sitting at the bar sometimes to order another beer. Yeah. Or order another cocktail. It's like, okay, well, if you're not I'm just gonna get up and leave. I might have had another one, but I'm if you're not going to walk over and say, Hey, would you like another beer? I'm i I'm just gonna get up and yeah. go. And it's one of those ones where, to me, it's like, again, circumstantially, mat- circumstances matter. And, like, you know, it, nothing is more galling than being at the bar with an empty glass in front of you and a bartender who's staring at their phone. And you're like, dude, come on. Like, really? I get it. You know, I'm sure whatever's happening on Instagram is the most important thing in the world. But I would like another drink. And, I mean, theoretically, that's your job here. I also think there's one part of this that comes back to, like, unfortunate it's just we live in a an American society here where people a lot of people don't drink very much and 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 so it's like this even when people are out drinking I mean obviously some people drink a lot but there's this weird thing where like people are sometimes like my wife and I go out to dinner and like certainly before we had a kid sometimes we would have two bottles of wine at a nice dinner and I don't think that's like bizarre but like we would be like finishing up a bottle of wine and like you know i don't know eating our having our appetizers or maybe starting our entrees and we'd be like yeah we'd like another bottle of wine and like sometimes it would people would be like wait are you serious and it's like you know you got to yeah. dinner you got to dinner in lots of other parts of the world i'm sure you know you just got back from chile and obviously you were there visiting wineries but i am sure that a bottle of wine per person at dinner was not something that people not would have rare. better than i at no i mean i think yeah that that's another tangent we can talk about another time but uh yeah, it's a lot of people in a lot of other countries are very flummoxed by what they think may be happening in, in this day and age in terms of the the American sort of not drinking, you know, drinking less with food, but drinking a lot of like spiked spike seltzer during the day. Flashback. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's very, very interesting. I would say, you know, the last the last like I think reasonable to assume for me at any bar around the country is just like if you're going to make have the proper glassware. Yeah. Like I'm not saying you have to have Pinot Noir glasses for Pinot Noir. I'm saying if you're going to make a martini, have martini glasses. Mm-hmm. If you're going to serve wine, have stemware. If you're, you know, if you're going to make an old fashioned, have rocks glasses. 
Like, that's all. That's all. Like, if if that's not what – if it's on your menu, let me – I guess that's – if if you have a cocktail list or you have a list and it's on your menu. If I walk into a dive bar and I'm the asshole that chooses to order, like, a certain drink that requires a certain glass and they don't have it, fine. But, like, the dive is a special breed of place that we should have a whole podcast devoted to because I, I love dive bars. Mm-hmm. But those are ve- – that's a very different place than – Another, you know, a bar that might have a list that has a Negroni on it, for example, and yeah. then brings you that Negroni in a in a Collins glass. I have been at a dive bar with someone who tried to order a Negroni, and it somehow ended even it ended slightly better than my wife's experience at an actual bar, but still did really? very well. Oh yeah, it was somehow like Campari and orange juice and like crushed ice and gin, I think. She drank it but was not happy, and I was like, "Well, believe, this is what you get." <laughs> I believe if you don't know. That a dive bar is for liquor straight or on the rocks, or maybe with mixers such as tonic water, soda water, or Coke, or Diet Coke, or Sprite, or ginger ale. You shouldn't be drinking at a dive bar (laughs) because that's what they do really well, and that there's a time and a place for those kinds of drinks. If you go to a dive bar and you're the asshole that orders a mojito or a fucking Negroni – you should just go home. That's probably that's a good all. place to end it. <laughs> I, I agree. I agree. I agree. Uh, yeah, this is, this has been a fun one. Uh, for those who do not realize, we're recording late night yeah, to is, get this one done. This is uh, this is this episode will be airing less than twelve hours or going online less than twelve hours after we recorded it. So I have a long night of editing this podcast ahead of me. Uh, Adam Thank has a long night me. of trying not to melt ahead of him. I know. Seriously, thank you for doing all the work. You're and uh, for those for those of you out there, thank you so much for listening. Please continue to uh, you know rate us, give us reviews, tell your friends, spread the word, um, and you know we can get this amazing podcast out to even more people. And uh, Zach, I will talk to you again next week. Sounds great. Thanks for listening to Vine Pair. We'd love to hear what you think. Feel free to drop us a line at podcast at vinepair.com. And if you really love the show. We'd love if you rate it and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Reviews and ratings really help other people discover the show. Now for the credits. VinePair is recorded in New York City at VinePair headquarters and in Seattle, Washington at Cloud Studios. Our engineer is Nick Patry, and the show is produced by Zach Jawal and me. Our show logo was designed by Daniel Grinberg. Special thanks as well to the entire VinePair staff, including but not limited to my co-founder, Josh Mallon, and our editor-in-chief, Emily Saladino. Thanks so much for listening and see you next week.